Good morning. If you'll take your Bibles and turn again to the book of Genesis, we're going to begin in chapter one today, but we're going to go through chapter two. Genesis chapter one. Last week, we studied the creation of the universe by the word of God. And today we zoom in a little bit on the creation of man and woman in the garden. The creation of man and woman in the garden. We don't have time to read the entire passage, but we're going to start in Genesis chapter one, beginning in verse twenty six. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Father, today, through the preaching of your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you work all things together for our good this morning and conform us more and more into the image of Christ we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we studied God's creation of the world. Genesis chapter 1 is a 30,000 foot view of everything that God made and declared that it was good. And we saw that what God made on days 1 through 3, He filled them up on days 4 through 6. So He fills outer space with cosmic lights, billions of stars, including our sun and moon. And on day five, he fills the sky with majestic birds and he fills the sea with incredibly diverse sea creatures. And on day six, he fills the earth with land animals, big and small, all unique as they display the wide range of God's creativity. And what we see today in Genesis one and Genesis two is as the crowning piece of God's creation. He announces that he will make man and woman in his image. To be his representatives on the earth. And everything that God made showed his goodness. As he makes a world that's not only conducive for human survival, but for human thriving. And this is an astounding truth in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Where man and woman is given the dignity and the privilege of being declared to be made in God's image. We've just read Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28 and in a a culture today that is confused about the nature of marriage and is confused about the nature of gender. There's 71 different genders you can choose now on your Facebook profile. God clearly states that man is made in his image, male and female. And so what does it mean that we are created in the image of God? Before we even look at this text, let me just give you three big ideas of what it means to be made in God's image. The first thing is to be made in God's image means that we are a unique reflection of God. We are a unique reflection. I want you to stop for just a moment and ponder how staggering this one truth is. 
That if you could get in a spaceship and travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless stars to the edge of the galaxy and swoop hundreds of light years away from the Milky Way, you would pass all of these luminous gas giants and witness the births of new stars. And in all of your interstellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and the wonder of a human being. The greatest wonder in creation is that God declares us to be in His image. When you see the birth of a child at Floyd Medical Center, that child once was not. And now he or she is. A created soul. And that baby is eternal. I want you to look at the person next to you and look at them. I'm giving you permission. Look at them. It might be awkward, but I want you to tell them this. You're eternal. You're eternal. The person you're sitting next to, I want you to think about this, Three Rivers, the person you're sitting next to will exist forever. When the stars of the universe fade away, that soul that you're sitting next to will still live. This is what astounded the psalmist in Psalm 8 when he said, Lord, when I look at your heavens, when I look at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And who is the son of man that you care for him? This is, this is a truth that should stagger us. The uniqueness of the human race lies not in our having developed more through evolutionary biology or that we have survived better, but we have been created in the image of God. We are crafted as a reflection of God. The same way that people look at children and say he's a spitting image of his father. We have been made as a unique reflection of God in a way that nothing else in creation can say. Now, this is spiritual. This isn't physical. God is spirit. It doesn't mean that we look like God physically, but we resemble him spiritually. So we are a unique reflection of God. The second thing is we are utterly reliant upon God. We've been made in his image. We're a unique reflection of him and we are utterly reliant on him. Because as creatures of God, we owe everything to him. We are dependent upon him for everything. You are not just dependent upon him for food. You are dependent on him for your very existence. Our next breath, our our hearts beat, everything that happens, we are conscious of the next moment because God allows us to continue to be sustained. If God were to withdraw his presence from the universe, everything as we know it would discontinue to be exist. This is why Jesus wasn't just speaking mere metaphor when he said man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We are a unique reflection of God. We are utterly reliant upon him. And the third thing it means to be in his image is that we are ultimately responsible to God. We're ultimately responsible to him. God, in verse 28 here, gives man dominion over the earth as his representatives. Just like a king uh, would build, if you watch Lord of the Rings, a king would put his statue all throughout the borders of his kingdom to show where the extent of his dominion would lie. And in the same way, God has put his image throughout the earth, the image of man who bears the image of God. This means that we are uniquely answerable to God for everything that we do and say. Our culture likes to think that we are in charge, that we can set our own course, we make our own pace, we chart our own course, we are the the authors of our own destiny. But in reality, we owe everything to him. So I would tell every man, woman, child, 
boy, girl in this room, you are answerable and accountable to God for everything that you do and say because you've been made in his image. So what does this mean for us? Genesis 1 is the big view. Genesis 2 zooms in on the relationship between God and man. And so why why does the author of Genesis, Moses, spend time uh, focusing in on the relationship between man and God? Remember what happens in Genesis 3. We have the fall, which shows man's rebellion. And so what God is first doing is He wants to show us how far we've fallen. He wants to remind us of what, what is the bar, what's the standard, what is the ideal. And the ideal is paradise. Man and woman serving God in paradise, fulfilling His, His creative purpose to have dominion over the earth. Unless we know how far we've fallen, we're not going to take our sin very seriously. And so Genesis 1 shows us the creative power of God's word. But Genesis 2 shows us now the test of obedience to that word. Because God has this power to create, because he has this authority to give everything meaning and existence, man will now be placed in the garden to see how he responds to God's word. Now remember, who was the original audience of Genesis? The Israelites, before they go into the the promised land, and God is giving them his law. He's giving them the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, the same way that he gives Adam and Eve his commands in the Garden of Eden. So let me summarize the sermon, right? If If you don't hear the sermon, here's the sermon in a sentence. With the world in its infancy, the Lord God created the first man, With the capacity to serve God and the responsibility to keep his commandments. Placing him in a perfect environment with every provision and completing him with a corresponding partner in the service of God. I'm going to summarize that in three points this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 2. The first point is that God has given us the ability to serve him. The second point is that God has given us the responsibility to obey his commands. And the third point is that God has given us a helper, a partner to fulfill the mission. Right. So let's look at this passage in Genesis chapter two. Now, verses five through seven is our first point that God has given humankind, man and woman, the capacity or the ability to serve him. God has given us the capacity to serve him. Verse four begins a new section in Genesis, and it begins like this. The this is chapter two, verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. The first two verses here, verses 5 and 6, give us this setting. A primeval setting of what the earth was like before man was created. And we're told that there was no bush in the field. There was no small plant. Because God had not caused it to rain. And God had not put man on the earth to work the ground. God was watering the ground from streams from the earth. And so what do we see here? What's the point? Why does he give us these details? The point is that in a world that was yet to flourish with fertility, God was preparing to bless his creation. He was preparing it for abundant growth. 
And before the earth could flourish under God's blessing, God focused his attention on the crowning point of life. And that is human life. And so we see the primeval beginning here that there's there's the, the everything's growing, but God's watering it. But there's no one to work the ground and to bring order to the chaos. And now verse seven tells us that God is going to make human life. Look at verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now, I want you to notice up until this point in Genesis chapter one, Moses has used one word for God, Elohim. It says God created on the first day, on the second day, God made on the third day, God, 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 Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. And then you get to chapter two, verse four, and you notice that Moses starts using a different name for God. Did you catch it? Look at verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God Made the earth and the heavens. Yahweh Elohim. Moses transitions from using just the the word Elohim. Which talks about God's creative work. His power and his majesty. And he begins to use the more personal name. Yahweh. The covenant name for God. The personal name for God. Elohim emphasizes majesty and sovereignty and creation. But Yahweh emphasizes the personal nature of God. The relational aspect. Isn't it interesting that in chapters 2 through 4 of Genesis, the only time where the word Yahweh Elohim is not used is when Satan is deceiving Eve in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. They convincingly, Satan does, and, and uses and avoids the personal name of God as she is lured towards sin. We don't use that personal name because Satan present, presents God as being impersonal and holding back. When this entire time Moses says it is Yahweh Elohim. He is the covenant God. The redeeming God. The one who is faithful to his promises. He's not just the creator. But he's also your redeemer. It is this Lord God. The creator of heaven and earth. Who in verse 7 forms man out of the dust. And breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. That word breath is the same word that's used for the spirit in chapter 1. Hovering over the waters. The Lord God's breath, it is his creative word, and it is also the power of his spirit that breathes life into man. It's interesting here that the Hebrew word for Adam is Adam, it's the word for man. And the word for ground, Adamah, the dust. So man literally comes from the dust, he comes from the ground. This is why in the New Testament... It's foolish, it's stupid for you to put your confidence in your flesh because you're just made out of dirt. You're putting your confidence in dirt. And yet man is the only one, man and woman is the only part of God's creation that is said to have the breath of God, the life of God. We're told here that he became a living being. It's the word nephesh for soul. In Hebrew thought, the word for soul, it's never divided. It is body and spirit together, and that is considered a soul. It's not just the spirit, it's not just the body, it's both together. God does not use this distinction for animals. So I'm sorry, all dogs do not go to heaven. And as much as you may love your pet, it, your pet does not have a soul. Okay, That's what separates humans from the animal kingdom, is that we're different. And God has given us life. He's gi- I, just, I just crushed somebody, I know, I'm sorry. But this is the 
This is the distinction. This is the dignity of what it means to be made in the image of God. Is that we have the the very breath of God. It's the same word used in Ezekiel. When he stands before a, a valley of dry bones. And sees a valley of dead people. And God's breath. The spirit of God breathes life. And raises up an army of people to serve him. He breathes life into his people. This is intentionality. And what what is being communicated here is that man has an ability to serve God that the animals do not have. You and I have been given the capacity and the ability because of the very life of God. You have the ability to serve God in a spiritual way that animals do not have because we have God's spirit. We have been given the spiritual nature that the animal kingdom does not have. So that's the first point. God has given man in a unique way. The ability to serve him. There's a second point in verses 8 to 17. Not only has God given us the ability to serve him, but he has also given us the responsibility to obey his commands. Because I would say this is causal because God made us in his image and because God has breathed life into us and because we bear his image in a distinct way, there is great responsibility that comes with this. Because of God's abundant provision in the garden. He has everything he wants to eat. You can eat of all that you want to eat in the garden. Anything you want to touch. You enjoy, Adam, everything that I've made. But because I've given you so much, it expects obedience from those who enjoy what I've made. This is why Jesus said, to whom much is given, much will be required. Or to continue our comic book theme, as Spider-Man would say, with great power comes great responsibility. Now, Spider-Man ripped that off from Jesus, but still, right? (laughs) With great blessing comes great responsibility. And if God has given us so much, it is not too little to think that he would expect obedience to his commands. So let's break this this next section down, verses 8 to 17. We can really look at this in two two sections. The first section explains God's abundant provisions. It shows the blessings that God gave Adam and Eve. And the next section explains the obedience that God expects from from his commands. So let's look at this. Verses 8 to 14 shows us these abundant provisions. Look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Good to know here that, that Eden is not the garden. Eden is a place, and the garden was placed in the land of Eden. Verse 9, out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam, and Adam can enjoy everything that God has made. But he must not eat this forbidden fruit. It's at this point in Genesis that we're introduced to these two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now Adam is free to eat from the tree of life and enjoy it. There's one tree he cannot eat from. This forbidden tree introduces the ideas of good and evil. Which becomes a major theme throughout the book of Genesis. God tells Adam to eat from this tree would bring the experience of both good and evil. And so now we're given a description, not just of the trees, but we're given a description of the garden in verses 10 to 14. This is kind of a side note here. 
And we're told about these rivers that flow. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and it divided into four. I'm not going to take the time to read all this, but basically there's a river that flows through it. And this land is rich with precious gems. Now, why is this here? Why does he describe this? The point of this description of the garden is not to give us latitude and longitude coordinates so that we can launch some expedition to the secret garden of Eden. So be wary, you guys, of the History Channel when they claim they found it, right? No, they haven't. Um, Scholars have disagreed about the exact location of the Garden of Eden. That's not even the point of this passage. Many believe it was in modern day Iraq. While one nut was convinced it was at the North Pole, right? So I'm serious. There's people who believe all types of things about where the Garden of Eden was. There's no mention here in the text of where it is. If you try to find this on a map, you're not going to be able to find it. What is the point? The point is that God gave Adam everything he needed to be successful. By providing abundant blessings. This was true paradise. And notice here that scripture begins and ends. Not only with a garden. But a paradise abundant with a, pre- with a river flowing through it. And precious gems surrounding it. There would be no true grounds. For man or woman to believe God was holding out on them. This is what Satan is going to try to tempt Adam and Eve with later. That God's holding out on you. And you can clearly see that God has given Adam so many abundant blessings. So what's the result of this? Because God has blessed Adam and put him in a garden with so many good things, he now expects obedience. Look at verses 15 to 17. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. This great blessing comes with an expectation of obedience. Adam's first and primary responsibility was to work the garden and to take care of it. By the way, the the words used here for to keep the garden is the same word that's used for the word Sabbath. Adam's work would actually be an act of rest. Work was not something that came after the fall. Work was part of God's original design for creation. The part of the fall, the the product of the fall is that because we sin, now your work is going to come with hard work and sweat. It's going to be difficult. Verse 16 contains the first command of scripture. The Lord God commanded him saying, you may eat of every tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That first commandment concerns life or death for good or evil. There's positive blessings for obedience as well as negative prohibitions. If you eat of it, you will die. And we see the same thing happen when when Israel prepares to go into the promised land. Don't have time to read this entire passage, but in Deuteronomy chapter 30, I would encourage you to read it. But this is where, as they prepare to enter the promised land, the second generation of Israelites are faced with the same proposition as Adam and Eve, where God says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, by loving the Lord, your God, by walking in his ways, if you keep his commandments, then I will you will live and you shall multiply. Verse 17. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, then you will surely perish. 
This was meant to echo for the Israelites what they already knew that happened to Adam and Eve. If I disobey, there's cursing. If I obey, there's blessing. The point is clear for us today. Since God has given us so much blessing, and has He not blessed us? Since God has given us so much blessing, and since you and I have not only the capacity to serve God, but the responsibility to serve Him, we must therefore live obediently in His service because our very lives are at stake. Obedience matters. And that obedience does not come out of a sense of duty. It's out of a sense of rest. It's out of a sense that God has given me life and He's given me abundant, abundant blessings. And I don't have to earn anything from Him because He's already given me everything that I need. But my life and my service to God comes out of a sense of joy. The third part, third point of this passage. Number one, man has been given the, the capacity to serve God, the ability. God breathed life into him. And that means that, secondly, God has given us the responsibility to obey His commands. There's conditions here for us. And the third point here is that God has given us the helper we need to complete the mission. Look at verses 18 to 25. This is where God gives Adam a helpmate. This is, we see the foundations of marriage being communicated here. So graciously, God does not leave man to serve Alone. We can look at this passage in two very clear distinctions. Verses 18 to 20 shows how man is incomplete. And verses 21 to 25 shows how God provided what he needed to complete him. Man's incompleteness and his completeness. So let's look at verses 18 to 20 and see man's incompleteness. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. For the first time in creation, God looks at something that he has made and he declares it to be not good. Everything else he's made, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then he looks at man serving alone and he says, this is not good. And to clarify something, this does not mean that God made man with a flaw. Okay? What it does mean is that Adam, by himself, was currently unable to do all that God had planned for humankind. Now, this could be that since God is a plurality, Trinitarian in nature, Father, Son, and Spirit, that man could not truly bear the image of God unless he was also created in plurality in male and female. This is part of the mystery in marriage of how male and female, too, can become one flesh. The same way that Father, Son, and Spirit are one God. And so, in order to prepare this needy bachelor, God institutes an awareness program. Adam, I want you to name the animals. This is part of him having dominion. You're going to name the animals. The same way that I created the world and named things, you're going to name the animals. You're going to have dominion. And this is not just something passive that Adam did. Adam had to innately know these animals. This was hard work for him. This was good work. He's, he's doing a kingly, priestly service here. And it is in serving God that Adam recognizes his own aloneness. Now this was God's idea first. God didn't tell Adam he was alone. God said, he's alone, this is not good. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. 
And so Adam, as he's naming the animals, becomes aware of his loneliness. He realizes, well, the rhinos have a mate. And those giraffes got a mate. And the dogs have a mate. I'm alone. I think God was letting Adam be alone so that he would value his helper. Men, I would say, if you don't value your wife, stay at home with the kids for a few hours while your wife goes out and you'll appreciate what she does, right? You're like, man, this is good. I need her, right? There's a huge point for all of us here, whether you're single or married. Scripture teaches that being alone is a negative concept and that the fullness of spiritual life can only be found in community. You need one another. This is why you can't forsake radical life groups. Whether you're single or married, you we need one another, right? So we see man's incompleteness. He's incomplete. And everyone has a helper and a, and, a, and a fit except for Adam. So verses 21 to 25 shows man's completeness. We're told that there was no helper fit for Adam. And by the way, ladies, the word helper here is not a demeaning term. In the Old Testament, God is the one who describes himself as a helper for his people. So for you to be described as a helper to your husband, this is not derogatory in any way. Helper describes someone who provides what is lacking in the man, who can do what the man alone cannot do by himself. So man was created in such a way that he needed the help of a partner. And I would add to this that women were created in a way that they needed the help as well. Women are incomplete by themselves the same way that men are. Not only does... Woman share his image. Verse 26 of chapter 1. Male and female God created them in God's image. The male and female both share God's image. But it says that she was fit for him. This means that the woman would share the man's nature. So God put Adam to sleep. He took one of the ribs that God made. And made woman. Notice that Adam also names woman as well. The first love, the first words out of a man's mouth in scripture is a love poem in verse 23. Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The woman literally takes the man's name. The Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. It sounds the same. This is this is partly why when when people get married, Christians get married, women tend to take the name of the man because that's what happened in the garden. And notice that he takes his rib. This is the basis of her equality with Adam. I love what Matthew Henry says here. She was not made out of his head to top him. She was not made out of his feet to be trampled by him. But she was made out of his side to be equal with him. Under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Well done, Matthew Henry, right? Well done. And so Adam responds with this love poem. And he says, I've finally seen someone who looks like me. Kent Hughes puts it very well. He says he was overjoyed to see this woman as a mirror of himself with some very agreeable differences. (laughs) And so how do we sum this up? How do we what do we take from this? We don't have time to get into all of the implications of what what it looks like to serve God in marriage. We're actually going to take a whole month in, in the summer to come back to these passages to talk about how do you serve God as a woman? How do you serve God as a man? How do you serve God in marriage? How do you be fruitful and multiply and teach your children to have dominion? How do you serve God as a single? 
Right? I don't want singles here to think that somehow you're incomplete because you're not married today. Because what I want you to see is the gospel implications of what's in Genesis chapter 2. That every one of us, as we're going to see next week in Genesis 3, has failed. Every one of us has failed. We have rebelled against God and the image of God that God made us to be has been broken and flawed. And so in all of your effort this week, in all of your lives to try to bear and reflect the image of God, you will fail. This is why we took communion this morning. To remind us of the gospel that there was only one man who ever lived who truly bore the image of God, truly. Christ himself was, in John chapter 1, the unique reflection of God. And Colossians 1 says, he is the image of the invisible God. In John 5, verse 19, he was utterly reliant upon God. In John chapter 8, Christ was ultimately responsible to God. And now, Jesus has sent us to reproduce his glory to the ends of the earth through another mission. Not just to take dominion, but to make disciples of all nations. And what we find in scripture is that God is working all things together for our good to conform us to the image of Christ. God is doing this and he has sent Christ to perfectly obey in your place to take away your sin through his death and resurrection so that you and I might one day be perfectly conformed to his image. And he has not left us alone. Whether you are married or single, he said, I will not leave you alone. I will be with you always to the end of the age and I will send you a Another helper who will be with you, who will convict you of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come, who will guide you into all truth and who will help you glorify me. He will be the Holy Spirit and he will be with you until the end of the age. Three rivers this morning, you and I have been made as new creations. God has saved us graciously and he has breathed new life into us through the power of his Holy Spirit. He has called us to make disciples of all nations, reproducing the image of God in every tribe, tongue and nation. And he has promised to fulfill this at the end of the age and by giving us a helper, someone who will come alongside of us to fulfill the mission that we could not do by ourselves. And so I'll leave you with this. Three Rivers, as we worship this morning, let's look forward to the glorious reality when we will see Christ face to face and 1 Corinthians 15, 49 will come true. That just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, one day we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's worship because of that truth. Would you pray with me? Father, what a glorious truth that you have made us in your image to serve you, to reflect your glory to the world. But Father, we're broken. We're broken and we need redemption. And you have sent your son, Christ Jesus, the true man of God, the true image of God, to be crucified for our sins, to bear our wrath and to be raised again so that we might have life. Father, you have given us your Holy Spirit as a helper to come alongside of us to fulfill the mission. So, Father, give us everything we need today. You have blessed us greatly. Give us what we need to fulfill the mission, to make disciples of all nations. Whether we are single or married, it does not matter. Matter. Help us to reproduce ourselves in making disciples so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will see the image of God and see the gospel truly reflected. Father, we love you. We pray that you will help us as we worship you today. 
to worship with joy and gladness that you have not left us in our broken state, but you have redeemed us from the fall. You deserve great praise today and we want to sing with joy. Help us to do that in spirit and in truth. In Jesus name. Amen.